In order to make sense out of the Eightfold Path that the Buddha laid out, it's really helpful to give a context or to have some kind of a framework of the world that we're living in now. And so, because it's a different world that we're living in now than the world that was around when the Buddha was living, he was very much living in a traditional culture, traditional context. And in a traditional context, they had various different ways of looking at things. They they valued authority and hierarchy, and they had a sense of valor and justice and honor. And um, there wasn't a sense uh, that, I mean, people did not exist as individual entities so much as part of village and clans and larger systems. And in a traditional society, um, if you had money and means, then you had different laws that you had to follow than everybody else. And, um, you know, there are all kinds of things that were happening in a traditional society that have shifted in a modern society. So when we look at a modern society and, and we look at, you know, some of the things that have changed, you know, one of the things that has changed in a modern society is, is that you know, the contemporary religion that is worshipped and bowed down to is reason. You know, what we think and what we think is scientifically proven is 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 valued uh, above what we feel. Is above valued above you know what happens in our social fabrics. It's valued above most everything. So, reason has been elevated above every other sphere of knowing. And, you know, we have come through an era not in such a long-distance past where justice is not just, well, it still is to some degree, but a little bit less, determined by how much money you have. So the laws uh, that we have in our society are meant to be for everybody, not just for a few. And, of course, we have, you know, places in our systems where this is not actually the way it works, but more so now than it was in a traditional society. And then we can see that, um, you know, there has been huge movements in the last hundred years towards um, non-discrimination, towards people of color, towards people with different gender, people with different sexual orientation, towards many different ways of expressing oneself being in this world. And a hundred years ago, this was like not heard of, you know. So even in the time of the Buddha, there are descriptions of how you take care of your slaves. And there's there are correct ways of taking care of your slaves and incorrect ways of taking your care of your slaves. But in the modern world, you know, we don't have slaves. And so we can see in many different ways that the, the culture has moved on, in, you know. So the, the 
the actual way in which in the old days we had slaves doesn't exist anymore. Now we've created new ways of having slaves, which are all considered quite legal and and uh, and everybody approves of, which we can talk about in a little bit. So in a modern world, personal will became the means of changing one's status, one's position, one's livelihood, and one's sense of well-being. And so in a traditional society, you were born into a, into a trade, and um, that was the trade that you had until you died, and you couldn't change it. And so we can, we can go back to school, we can retrain, we can get different educations. And what our parents did does not have to determine what we do. We can be independent of our parents and independent of our clan and independent of our village. So with the breakdown of the village and the clan system, with the breakdown of a nuclear family, extended family system, with the breakdown of an agroecology system, uh, we became much more industrialized, and as we became more industrialized, we used more technology. As we used more technology, we have a little bit less contact with nature. As we become less connected to nature, we've lost a sense of how we fit into a larger picture. And so, um, you know, with the technological advances and with the ways in which a modern society has has evolved, then there's less sense of our own place in nature. So all alongside all of these things, then the sense of the individual took on an exceptionally highly accentuated value. So in a traditional society, an individual had almost zero significance. The significance was for the village or the clan or the, the system that was, wasn't part of. It wasn't about the individual. And in a modern society, we have a tremendous amount of interest and importance on the individual and very little on the clan and the village and the community and the culture and all the rest of that. And so with this individual importance, we are developing ourselves, and we have interest in success for ourselves, and we have interest in personal growth and we have interest in enlightenment for ourselves. So alongside the Industrial Revolution came an endemic and systemic uh, levels of loneliness, isolation, and alienation that had never been experienced before. And this was not only amongst the working class people, this was among the affluent and the highly educated as well. So with this kind of shift and what can be you know what used to have been ascribed to the transcendent realms you know or or given religious um meaning to was then reduced to kind of like senseless or brute matter so where there had been mystery or where there had been spirit or where there had been um something that connected us to something larger all of a sudden it was kind of like flattened into something that had very little meaning to it. And so alongside the isolation, the alienation, the loneliness, there was a kind of emptiness that people started experiencing as like a systemic and endemic experience in society. It's not the emptiness that the Buddha was talking about. This is the emptiness that is bleak, that is lonely, that is arid, that is devoid of warmth and devoid of connection. And 
with this sense of emptiness, there's a lack of purpose, there's no sense of place or belonging, and, uh, you know, a whole kind of massive, painful, despairing uh, social fabric that has been created. And as a result of this kind of pain, then um, there became a, an obsession with acquisition of power, not for any particular purpose, but just as a way of, of distracting one from the pain of, of this emptiness, of this loneliness, of this alienation, of this purposelessness, of this powerlessness. So there became a, an obsession with acquisition of power, of material possessions, of, of sexual pleasures, of, you know, and then all kinds of greater risks in entertainments, in, in sports, in all kinds of ways. And so, and then, and then alongside or parallel to all of this, we've seen just massive issues around addiction and large populations of the society, addiction to substances, addictions to food, addictions to sex, addiction to um, all kinds of things in order to numb and distract ourselves from this underlying pervasive sense of discomfort that has been part of what was created in a modern world. So when we look at the movement from a modern world to a postmodern world, you know, there's a shifts taking place where there's much more interest in integration. There's much less separation between the world of spirit and the world of the transcendent and the imminent. We're wanting to put these things together. We're not wanting to divide our spirituality and our sexuality. We're not wanting to divide the, what is transcendent from what is earthly. We were not wanting to, to, to diminish nature at the expense of what is transcendent. We want to bring these things together. And we're also interested in not just a single narrow pathway, but an integrative pathway that includes all the different kinds of levels of what it is to be a human being. So in a traditional society, it was very much thought of that if one achieved enlightenment and was able to experience the stages of awakening, that, that this would be the sum total of all that one needed to be in order to be completely happy. And in a postmodern society, this is not completely given up. But there's also an interest in understanding how we relate to people, how we communicate with people, what our effect is on the world around us, what's going on in the politics around us, and how our individual world and way we practice is somehow intersecting with these internal and external spheres. So we don't isolate ourselves and take ourselves out of the world as much as we're interested in developing ourselves in order to interact and relate with the world. So I am pretty positive that I would not be alone in saying that some of the crises and the problems that we're facing on the world right now have affected me very deeply. And, you know, when I look at, you know, what we're dealing with, with like unbelievable issues around climate change and wars, 
which seemed to me from my not very sophisticated political understanding that the wars are partly because of trying to secure oil fields in order to maintain our addiction to fossil fuel as a basis for our economy and a basis for the way we live. And alongside the addiction to fossil fuels and the co-arising of climate change, um, we've got huge economic problems where, like in the last two years, I think, 97% of the wealth was given or went to 7% of the population. So we're, we're dealing with, you know, kinds of stuff that is um, not at all trivial in terms of as a planet, as a society, as a global population of people trying to navigate. So this is kind of like the context that we're working with, which is some of these things are very different from what was going on at the time of the Buddha. You know, they didn't have population control. They didn't have climate issues. They didn't have these kinds of global crises. They had wars but they didn't have massive amounts of wealth going in to sustain them and the wars being like part of securing oil fields to generate the economic base that was running the society. They had a different thing going on there. You know, it was different than what we're dealing with now. So, you know, the Buddha laid out the Eightfold Path, and this was his instructions on how to pa- on how to practice. So the fourth of the Four Noble Truths is the Eightfold Path. We understand that there's suffering, we understand there's a cause of suffering, we understand there's a cessation of suffering, and the fourth Noble Truth is there's a path that leads to the cessation of suffering. Okay? And that's the Eightfold Path. So when we look at the Eightfold Path in terms of where we are in our world right now, I think it's important both to understand what the Buddha intended in a classical description of it, what his intent was, and then to begin to let our minds open about how we practice this or how this is relevant or what we need to do with these classical instructions in our postmodern world with the kinds of things that we are navigating now what makes sense, you know? So what I would like to do is just describe the Eightfold Path in both its classical and its postmodern interpretations to speak very briefly about the vision that I have and then to open this up for discussion. Because, you know, for me, I'm interested to see what you see. I'm interested to hear what resonates with you. I'm interested to know where this comes alive for you. So the Eightfold Path is, connect, is, is made up of right view, right thought, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. Now, sama is classically translated as right, but the way I like to translate it is connected. So when I look at what is connected view, classically connected view has two components to it. There's the mundane connected view and there's the super mundane connected view. And the mundane connected view is to understand that there's good and bad and right and wrong action and skillful and unskillful. 
and it is skillful to give alms. It is skillful to take care of one's parents. It's skillful to um, see that there are um, results of our actions. These are all skillful. But as I was saying in one of the evening talks, this is that we can be really adept at being good, moral people, but we're still not free. We can be good, we can be moral, we can be committed to harmlessness, but we still suffer because we really haven't penetrated through the illusion of I am. That's still operating and driving and determining that we experience ourselves as separate entities to whom everything that we experience belongs to me and is what I am. So the super mundane component of connected view is the understanding and the realization of the Four Noble Truths. To actually understand that there's suffering and to begin to get a sense of the cause of suffering and to realize the cessation of suffering. So when I look at connected view in a postmodern world, I cannot help but see the effect that we have on each other, you know? And that when we look at the kind of various social problems that we're dealing with, it's not going to resolve by individuals or small, tiny little clusters stockpiling and getting enough uh, for themselves to barricade against the, the rest of the world. And when I see what happens when we listen to each other, when I see what happens when people open up with empathy with each other, I can see networks and fabrics and healing and support that takes place both on the individual level and on the group level. And I cannot help but feel that in connected view, there has got to be a fundamental understanding and appreciation of the role of community. That our capacity to weather the challenges that we have is going to either be made or not made based on our capacity to form kinship groups and support each other through this. I think we are past the time of superheroes where there's going to be one person who's going to rise up out of the morass and lead everybody to safety. I think it's going to be small clusters of groups of people who bond together, who are committed to supporting each other through thick and thin to find ways to deal with the immediate, the larger, and the global problems that we're dealing with. So when I look at connected view, it has got to include the social fabric of community as an essential part of it. The next of the Eightfold Path is connected thought and connected intention. And classically, these are the intention for renunciation, the intention for goodwill, and the intention for harmlessness. The Right intention or connected intention in the classical interpretation has got to include the understanding of the Four Noble Truths as part of it. Because the Four Noble Truths is the basis from which one moves out of suffering. When we're looking at renunciation, what that really is looking at is what is it that we are needing to let go of, you know? 
What are the ideas, the beliefs, the things, the ways of being that we have been engaged in that no longer serve that we need to let go of? When we're looking at connected intention from a postmodern world, my question is, how can we begin to start creating these kinship networks that support isolated communities to start building fabrics of communication, of networking, where we are actually supporting ourselves and each other to do the work that's necessary. When we look at it connected speech, classically what this is asking for is restraining from false, divisive, harsh, or idle speech. When we look at right action, classically that's refraining from taking life, from taking what is not given, from sexual misconduct, from dishonest or unskillful speech, and from indulging in intoxicants. When we look at connected livelihood, classically it's being engaged in livelihood that is legal, that is peaceful, that is honest. But when we look at this in the postmodern world, you know, Inside Dialogue is an example of something which is not in the Pali Canon in terms of a methodology that helps people stabilize qualities of meditation in the process of communication. And we've had two sessions with it. And yet, from what I observe, it's impactful. It's helpful. And so there are modern methods that are emerging that help us bridge the classical understanding of what meditation is about and start bringing it into our world. There are a couple of books that I have read. One is uh, Marshall Rosenberg's Nonviolent Communication, and the other is a book called Crucial Conversations by a team of four or five that talk about navigating some of the really difficult stuff that comes up when we're talking with people. When we're looking at this in a postmodern context, it has got to be that our communication, that our actions, that our livelihood is part of our practice. And so the model of silence on a retreat is contextual, it's not absolute, it is incredibly useful in order to develop the stillness to be able to sleep, see clearly, so that the clarity of our seeing can then come back into our relating, so that our community and our relationships and our fabrics of the worlds around us can begin to start knitting together, rather than we're going into silence in order to move away from those things because there's pain and difficulties in them that we are having a hard time facing. When we look at connected effort, you know, classically there's four right efforts. We're interested in preventing unwholesome states that have not yet arisen. And we're interested in abandoning unwholesome states that are present. We're interested in arousing the stuff that hasn't arisen that's wholesome. And we're interested in maintaining and cultivating and perfecting what has arisen. 
that is also wholesome. When we look at connected effort in our postmodern world, what I wonder about is what does this look like as a living model or as many living models? So let me take a moment and just share with you the kind of vision that I had when I left England about what I wanted to create or what I thought would be a useful way that this might somehow take shape. Because having lived in England for 20 years in the monastery that I have, I have seen there's an enormous amount of value that comes from the kind of rigorous monastic training that I have had. And I could go on for months about that, years about that. It's just enormously valuable. It's incredibly powerful to have a community of people that are singularly focused on a common values and common aims and be able to spend one's life in a way where there's that kind of commitment and dedication and a high caliber teaching and a high caliber integrity living um, these kinds of values. And the people who are living their value and the people who are associated with it value, there's a lot of value. The places where I found that it had some room to grow was because a lot of what we were dealing with was a transposition of a traditional society that had very, very clear gender bias. And so we had all kinds of issues to navigate between the monks and the nuns because the monks were the ones who had the power and the authority independent of how many years the nuns were in the community. And so in our postmodern world where we know the effect of prejudice is harmful, we know that this stuff is actually not liberating. In fact, we know categorically it's, it's harmful. It does the opposite of liberate. It, it harms people. It harms everybody. So certainly we've got to move out of these traditional places where there are gender biases and there's discrimination that's taking place on the basis of identity. It's not helpful. It does not serve awakening. One of the other things that I saw was is, is that in addition to there being a bias against genders there in monastics, there was also a bias against precepts. So the people who had the power were the people who had the precepts. And so the monastics were the ones who made all of the decisions about how the spiritual community unfolded. And if you have a community that is an oasis for everybody and you only have a privileged people having power, eventually that's going to have a problem. Because everybody who is in that community who is getting the, the benefits of it there needs to be some kind of feedback mechanisms where there are people who are in that level who are representing and able to uh, articulate their understanding and their wisdom into the leadership model. And so what I found was is, is that people who had been committed to the monastery for 20 or 30 or 35 years also felt dispossessed because there was no place for their wisdom to be included in the leadership of the community. And you come to North America and you see, you know, I don't know what percentage, but you know, there's probably, uh, well, I don't know, including traditional Buddhists, but in Western Buddhists, there's probably, 
40, 50, 100 monastics here? You know, and how many thousands, hundreds of thousands of lay people are there? So there's an absolute disproportion between the number of lay practitioners and lay centers and lay teachers and monastics. So it's tilted completely towards the lay scene, as the lay people are the ones who have the power and they're the ones who have the the places and they're the ones who have the communities and they're the ones who have the students. And the monastics, we've now become the people of color. You know, we sit at the back of the bus. (laughs) It's not often that we're invited to the conferences or, (laughs) you know. So, I mean, and not always that way, but it's, you know, there's not a sense of the fact that we actually have a special place in this whole field. Now, for me, this is sad. And part of the reason why it's not, not just because I'm a nun, but because having lived in a monastery and I can see the richness that can unfold when you've got monks and nuns and laymen and laywomen practicing together, is is that when it is just lay people, you don't have the richness of this other precept commitment and you don't have the richness of what they can bring. Now the Buddha talked about the twofold sangha of monks and nuns and the fourfold assembly of monks, nuns, laymen and laywomen. We are beyond binary definitions of male and female and we're beyond binary definitions of just monks and nuns. We now are in a society where there are priests who are married and you know, there's all kinds of levels of precepts. And so for me, I think what we need to do is to move into a many-fold sangha that includes everybody and doesn't differentiate on the basis of gender or sexual orientation or precepts. Everyone is welcome. So the vision of awakening truth was to create a Dhamma village and to have the Dhamma village be a place where people could practice, where monastics could practice and lay people could practice and there would be places where food was grown and food was cooked and there'd be places where you could get medicine and education, where you could be born, where you can live and where you could die, where you can get stuff to wear, where you could recycle your things. It was a village that took care of basic needs. And the the idea that has so far evolved is, is that it wouldn't be that the monastics would be the ones in charge. There would be a, a, a council of elders that would be comprised of, of monastics and lay people who would make the decisions about the wisdom component of how the community was operating. And the community functioned in support of awakening for everyone with the kinds of supports that are needed. Intelligence around psychological development, intelligence around community and communication, intelligence around sustainability. And within this Dhamma village, there were kinship groups that would meet together in larger groups in order to help support or to do ceremony or to have practice or to have teachings or to have retreats or to have things like that. But that people were not living as isolated entities, even though everybody had their separate space. They were living in a fabric of relatedness that would go back to their separate space and then come together to do various different tasks. Now, I don't know if this resonates with you. 
you know, I don't know if this feels like, yeah, this feels great or this feels impossible or I have no interest. But for me, when I lived in the monastery for those many years and I could see the incredible power of it, but I could also see the places where it had distortion in it and the distortion needed to shift to deal with our postmodern world. Now, one of the things that I think has happened, which I think is a good thing, and I'd be curious to see how it actually washes out, is that in the monastery, the monastics had enormous privilege. And in North America, we don't have enormous privilege, you know? And I don't think that's a bad thing on one hand, and on another hand, something has got to equal out, otherwise the monastics are not going to be able to survive. So I think something needs to shift in terms of the way the monastics are holding their rules, which keep them separate and privileged. And I think there also needs to be a way in which the lay community can value that what the monastics have to offer is valuable and support something coming into a middle path that works for both. Now, for me, where it works for both is when we're committed to each other's awakening. That's when it works for both. It's not that we're committed to one person having privilege, we're committed to each other's awakening. That's when it works for both. And what it looks like, I don't have a lot of fine detail figured out in terms of leadership models or other than what I've just described. So we've gotten through some of the Eightfold Path and we still have connected mindfulness and connected concentration. So in connected mindfulness, classically, you know, we know that truth is to be known individually by each one. The truth is apparent here and now and that truth is timeless. And that classically, the understanding of the four foundations of mindfulness is the application of right mindfulness or connected mindfulness. And we have been talking about that. It's the bringing attention to our body, to the quality of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, to the emotions and to the thoughts in our mind, and to the experiences that we're having in terms of the groupings of hindrances, aggregates, sense bases, seven factors of an awakening, and the Four Noble Truths. In terms of how this is applied in our postmodern context, you know, I would be interested to hear, you know, what is your experience of being in a group? What is your experience of teachings? What is your experience of a teacher? What is your experience of insight dialogue? How have these things heightened your mindfulness? Is there, in fact, a connection that you experience between the way we support each other and your own capacity to practice. And if that is in fact the case, then it is it in our best interest to find ways where we can develop kinship groups that sustain while we are not only on retreat. And what would that look like? How do we do that? How do we stay in contact? How do we have places where we can meet up and remember? How do we take care of each other when we're going through difficult times? How do we even know we're going through difficult times if we're not in contact? 
connected concentration classically is the practice and the cultivation of the eight jhanas, these absorptions that bring mind into refinement, into clarity, into stillness, where there's a sustained and applied thought. And then when the thought falls away, when the rapture comes, when there's no more pleasure or pain, there's just equanimity. And then in the formless jhanas, where their mind is absorbing into states of that um, moving beyond identification with the body. In terms of in our postmodern world, where we have more and more duties and responsibilities and impact and contact and more dispersion and distraction, more pressure, more difficulties trying to make ends meet, what does that look like? What does it look like bringing our mind into subtleness? What does it look like supporting each other to do that? What does it look like living a life where we can practice in our world? And I know for myself, you know, I spend a lot of time on a computer and the computer is really absorbing. And so I need to take periodic breaks and stop and I need to remind myself because if I don't set timers and things, I can be gone for hours and, you know, I'm not paying careful attention. I know for myself I do much better when I have time in nature. I know for myself that I do much better when I take a dime day out of the week where I'm not on the computer, you know, where I have sustained periods of time for practice. And I know that I have a a need both for silence and solitude, but I also have a need to speak about Dhamma and to connect with people on the level of practice. And if I don't get the various different needs met, then the whole system doesn't feel settled and peaceful and at ease. When I can see how deeply we are affected by each other, how much we tune into each other, how much we are genuinely able to care for each other when our systems are not completely overwhelmed with too much suffering. I have tremendous hope about what's possible in this world. When I see the way intelligence just gathers and collects and sorts out problems, Without any one particular spearheading it, it's just the intelligence kind of arises and comes forward and takes care of things. I have enormous confidence in what we are capable of as human beings. But I also have been in communities and seen how people not attending to their inner work, it goes skiddlywampus. And the people who are in power use their power not to support awakening, but to support putting others in a position of inferiority. So when there isn't the commitment above everything else to do the work internally, then it can take hold of a form and use it to justify ignorance. So... You know, I live as a hermit nun in Colorado Springs, right next to the Garden of the Gods. And, you know, for the next little while, what I feel committed to be doing is to write and to teach and to be available as I can. 
And part of my interest in writing is because I feel that if I'm able to describe some of the things that I've been through and some of the visions that come through, then there is a way that I might be able to convey this in a larger way than in groups of 15 or 20 or 45 or 100, you know, here and there. And my sense is, is just to hang tight and to see what happens and to see if there's other people who feel a resonance with this who come and find me and say, you know, this is important to me. I want to make it happen. What do we need to do? I'm a visionary. I am not a strategist. I have huge vision and I don't have the steps, all of them lined up about how to get there. And I'm one. This will take a small army. What interests you? What resonates? What makes sense? What doesn't make sense? What does it feel like listening to this? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.